All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole Peterson. I'd like to thank you all for joining us for our SMA STRATCOM Academic Alliance speaker session entitled The Real and Present Risk of Low-Yield Nuclear Weapons on the Battlefield. I'd also like to thank today's speaker, Dr. Adam Lowther, for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, before we begin, oh, uh, just a few quick housekeeping items. So we'll be having a Q&A session at, at the conclusion of today's brief. So during the brief or during the Q&A, go ahead and submit your questions through ZoomGov's chat function. It's a chat icon at the bottom bar of your screen. Also go ahead and submit all of your questions today to Ms. Mariah Yeager. Her name should be listed as questions-Mariah Yeager. And questions that aren't submitted to Mariah specifically may not be addressed, so go ahead and send those questions to Mariah. Also note that your name is going to appear in the chat before your question, and it'll be read out loud before we address that question. If you prefer for your name to not be recorded and on the record, go ahead and rename yourself by going to participants at the bottom bar of your screen, then more next to your name, and finally rename. So now I'm going to briefly introduce today's speaker before I turn the floor over to him. Dr. Adam Lowther serves as the Director of the Department of Multi-Domain Operations at the Army Management Staff College. He is a Professor of Political Science at the U.S. Army School of Advanced Military Studies, or SAMS, where he taught 21st century conflict to senior service college students in the Advanced Strategic Leadership Studies Program. He's also an expert in nuclear deterrence, multi-domain multi operations, and the nuclear programs of Russia and China. So Dr. Lather, I'll turn the floor over to you now, and I will start displaying your slides. Okay, thanks. Uh, and thanks to everybody for taking the time today to, to join us. Uh, and also, I, I do want to thank my uh, co-authors on a couple of pieces that I'll be drawing from today. Uh, James Ragland is at uh, the Defense Nuclear Weapons School out at Kirtland Air Force Base, and Robin Hutchins is a uh, PhD candidate at Kansas State University in the Nuclear Engineering Department. So we've been collaborating uh, on some work recently. Uh, next slide, please. So I want to cover sort of four general areas today. The first one is why I asked the question, sort of what, what, was, what generated, you know, the interest in research in this area. And then obviously, why is this an important topic? And then what are plausible scenarios where low-yield battlefield nuclear weapons could be used? And again, I, you know, everybody wants to, if you've done a war game, you know, everybody fights the scenario. And so I would not suggest with the scenarios I offer you today that these are going to happen, that they're imminent or anything of that sort, uh, if you're familiar with sort of futures methodologies and futuring, uh, you look across the range of, of plausible options and some are, you know, more likely and some are less likely, but always plausible. So that's, you know, just to sort of put it in context that, you know, the idea was what is in the realm of the possible. And then of course, uh, what do the weapons effects look like? So as I lay out the scenario for you today, uh, the idea is we took that scenario and then using unclassified uh, capabilities, we look to what the weapons effects might be, just to see what, you know, what in reality does that mean? And then, of course, what are possible solutions? Now, I'll preface my set of options for solutions to say that I certainly understand that we do not live in a political environment where my uh, options are likely. 
So I certainly understand the political constraints of, of what I suggest. So I'll just throw that out there. Uh, so let's uh, go ahead and get started. So next slide, please. So I spent uh, a few years at uh, uh, SAMS, the School of Advanced Military Studies, and in the 2020-2021 school year, 11 uh, students and I did a project for the Army and we looked, in which we looked at, is the Army properly organized, trained, and equipped to deal with nuclear weapons on the battlefield? And of course, we're turning that, that large project into a book uh, that will hopefully be out in the next year or two. And then after finishing that, I moved over to the Army Management Staff College to stand up the MDO department. And one of our main uh, efforts at AMSC, and for most of you probably have never heard of AMSC, but the Army has about 300,000 uh, civilians, civil servants. And so AMSC primarily exists to educate the Army's civilian workforce. And so that's who we're focused on. And so I've spent a lot of time since moving, thinking about the theories of victory of Russia and China. And so looking at the Army over the 2021 timeframe, now looking at theories of victory and, and how both the Russian leadership and Chinese leadership think about the United States and, and obviously they see us as competitors and see that there might be a future need to defeat the United States in conflict. So I'm, you know, sort of building the interest here. Now, next slide, please. Now, last August, I spent the month out at the Defense Nuclear Weapons School, taking, uh, attending a series of courses, uh, you know, that were designed to, you know, educate uh, students on weapons effects. And one of the courses in particular, the Theater Nuclear Operations course, TNOC, which if you've never attended uh, any of the classes at BNWS, I would highly recommend them. They're excellent. But whenever I was at TNOC, one of the things that we had to do is we planned uh, nuclear strikes using uh, DITRA software. And so as somebody who spent most of my career with the Air Force, not the Army, um, I've spent, you know, I was the dean of the uh, SANS, the School of Advanced Nuclear Deterrence Studies for a few years. And we focused on strategic nuclear warfare and, and deterrence. And so moving to the Army, and I started to have to think about uh, nuclear weapons on an actual battlefield in which soldiers you know, are moving to contact with, with the adversary, with an enemy, I had to start thinking about nuclear weapons very differently. And so as we were in uh, TNOC and we were we were executing strikes and we were planning out the weapons effects of these strikes. One of the things that struck me as we looked at hypothetical uh, Russian weapons, and we looked at weapons that were of lower yields from say one to 20 kilotons, what struck me is how narrow the minimum safe distance was for which troops could be uh, when, a weapon, when a weapon detonates. And it was something that I had never really thought about before. And so, you know, really coming to understand what weapons effects are, as opposed to sort of the, you know, the broader, you know, it's uh, once weapons, uh, you know, are used, 
uh, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, Armageddon and it's uh, weapons, you know, it's ICBMs crossing the pole, but to really come to understand that they can be used in much more discrete ways, that sort of furthered me to thinking about, well, what are the range of possibilities in which nuclear weapons could be employed and be employed in such a way that it didn't lead to all-out nuclear war? And what are these limited effects that I now know, having taken TNOC, that there are limited effects that can be achieved and that you can limit, you know, the three, you know, prompt ionizing radiation, you can limit thermal effects, you can limit uh, the blast. And so, of course, that led me to think, if you go to the next slide, if you think back to and of course, I don't think this is from the interwar years, but it's, you know, this is the Naval War College. And it's, uh, you know, it's one of the pictures from, you know, the, where the Naval War College, of course, during the interwar years, you know, war gamed the war in the Pacific that, you know, it didn't happen exactly like they had war gamed it, but they were pretty well prepared because they had spent that time prior to Pearl Harbor and then after thinking through what would a war in the Pacific look like? And so therefore it got me to thinking, and of course some folks up at NDU had already been thinking about this and folks elsewhere, so we weren't the first, but thinking through what would a, you know, the use of let's say one or a small number of low yield nuclear weapons, what could it potentially look like? Under what circumstances and conditions? And so as we started to think through these and looked at what other folks had already said and what they had been thinking, we came up with a couple of, a couple of plausible scenarios. So if you could move uh, to the next slide. And so, of course, this is sort of a well-known scenario in which, you know, the, uh, Russia uh, invades the Baltic states, plausibly to, you know, defend Russian nationals or, you know, whatever the case may be, whatever is the impetus. And there's an Article 5 triggered with NATO, and then, you know, a NATO force moves uh, to expel Russian forces in the Baltic states. And of course, you know, you can see to the north is Kaliningrad, to the south is uh, Belarus, and they're going to have to move through the Sawaki Gap. Uh, and next slide. And if you look at them, you know, a, a close-up map, you can see the, you know, the town of Sawaki to the, to the bottom left, <clears throat> and then the main road that goes from Sawaki into Lithuania. So you could imagine, you know, a NATO force led, you know, presumably by the United States, would be moving down that highway. And in our scenario, uh, the Russians use a 10 kiloton weapon uh, in advance of the NATO force, so not on the NATO force, but in, in advance of the NATO force um, to, as an act of, you know, escalation to deter further movement, essentially, you know, to sort of support a fiat accompli in which uh, NATO backs down. That's sort of the, the basic genesis of this scenario. And then we imagined a, a scenario in Asia as well. So if you could move to the next slide. So if you could imagine an instance in which, you know, we, we presume that China, 
you know, uh, is waiting to take Taiwan back. And if, you know, the United States uh, were to think that, you know, it would be necessary to move naval assets uh, to support Taiwan and deter China, and they could either approach through the East China Sea from the Pacific or north through the South China Sea. And in a similar case, you, you could potentially imagine where the Chinese, because they would consider all of these um, these waters, their, their territorial waters, and so therefore would not see it as a violation of their no first use if they were to use a nuclear weapon uh, in their territorial waters for defensive purposes, active defense. You, you know, you could imagine that potentially plausible, and the idea would be uh, to achieve a similar result in, as in the Russia scenario where you don't necessarily uh, nuke the carrier strike group or multiple carrier strike groups that are coming to Taiwan's aid, but that a detonation occurs in front of the advancing uh, naval forces as a, you know, as a warning. So those are, you know, two of the scenarios that we envision. Uh, if you could go ahead and go to the next slide, please. So, you know, primarily thinking in terms of the Russia scenario, uh, we envision weapons, so we calculated weapons effects. Uh, we used uh, both Glassstone and Dolan. So we, we hand jammed these calculations. And so thanks to Robin and, and Rags for, for doing that. And then also we used a, an unclassified uh, Los Alamos uh, software to do it. Uh, we did not use our DITRA tools for this. Uh, so there's, you know, there's a little less fidelity than we would have gotten with, uh, you know, our, our DITRA tools. But you, so we, we set the height of burst at 600 feet. And we did that because it, at about 600 feet, uh, the fireball doesn't touch the ground and therefore it doesn't, you know, suck ground material uh, up into the detonation and, and therefore create fallout. So, you know, it's essentially a fallout free, um, fallout free detonation. And, you know, we did that on purpose to, to limit damage. You could have, of course, if you would have set it as a ground burst, it would have created the traditional mushroom cloud you think of and sucked lots of debris up that would have been irradiated and then deposited back on the ground. We said, hey, that's not what the Russians are trying to achieve. They're trying to achieve, um, you know, a, a political uh, victory here with very limited damage. So now if you think about the road, that road from Sawaki out to, uh, out to uh, Lithuania is pretty sparsely populated. And so if this detonation were to occur, not in New York City or Berlin, but in this very sparsely populated area, you could imagine that uh, there would be limited damage. So we've set the height of burst to where we don't have uh, irradiated ground material. Um, and of course, the blast and thermal effects and prompt radiation all dissipate within about a thousand yards or less. And so you have a very, you know, you have very limited effects with this. And so you can read there for yourselves what those weapons effects are. But like I said, the, the three major uh, effects are prompt ionizing radiation, 
the blast wave and, and thermal. And those all dissipate within about a thousand yards for a 10 kiloton detonation. Now that's pretty close actually, if you can imagine. And so therefore uh, you could have troops within a mile. So let's say this detonation occurs, um, you know, a mile ahead of, of the advancing NATO, NATO column. They would certainly be able to see the blast, but would be far enough away from the effects of the blast. So you would, you could still potentially have damage to eyes, things like that. And then of course, American troops, if, if we set ground zero as the highway that they would be moving, they could move through that uh, ground zero in about 48 hours because all, you know, the radiation would have dissipated at that point. And then, like I said, at that, the final bullet at the bottom of the page, it's about, you know, a thousand yards from minimum safe distance. And this, of course, uh, you know, if troops are, you know, protected and, you know, versus out in the open, you know, these, these things make a difference. So if we could move to the last slide. So these are the weapons effects. And of course, we really haven't talked about, uh, oh, I, yeah, I forgot these slides. These slides just, so here's your overpressure uh, slide that shows you the dissipation, the dissipation rate of, of overpressure. You can see for yourselves how it dissipates. If you could move to the next slide. Here's thermal fluence and how it dissipates. So you can see it's hot close, but that dissipates quite quickly. And then finally, the next slide. And then here is your, uh, your RADs, the, you know, the doses of RADs that you'll get and that, that, you know, you're down to essentially zero before you get to a thousand yards. And this is your prompt ionizing radiation. Now, if you could move to the next slide. So here's my, you know, solutions. Um, and of course, like I said, I recognize the political challenges with achieving any of these. But what could you potentially do? Well, so I, I've spent a good bit of time in NATO and, uh, you know, went to uh, shape headquarters. And one of the things that struck me, you know, I sort of never realized this until I was there that we don't have a posture in which we've declared that Russia is an adversary. So NATO has no declared adversaries. And so therefore there's no planning against any adversaries. So what could you potentially do? Well, if you declared NATO an adversary, that would then kick in, you know, kick into action a planning process to which we would, we would move to, to build the requisite plans to, to more effectively counter and deter Russia. I think that could have a positive impact. Um, also spent time at the, you know, at the DCA bases. And one of the things is that uh, would be useful because we don't have declared adversary, the operational readiness rates are not as high as, as for example, you know, our assets in the United States. So you could improve the operational readiness rates of uh, the aircraft that fly the DCA mission. And I think that would have, and you could actually train to deliver those weapons uh, in a way that would deter the Russians um, and to work with, you know, NATO troops. So, you know, it's not a traditional mission of the DCA, uh, but you could all actually uh, work with ground troops to, to support, 
you know, encountering uh, Russian use of a nuclear weapon. And then, of, of course, uh, if you think back, I spent some time, you know, I was doing some research at the Reagan Library on INF and, you know, sat there for weeks going through the archives, looking at uh, the old, you know, the, the internal minutes of the, the INF debate and how Reagan thought through that. And so a lot of that logic, I think, still applies in terms of the effects of both like a, a new Pershing three. We have the capability, we have the know-how. Uh, you know, right now it's a political will issue. And so um, you could build a Pershing three, you could build a Glickum two. And of course, the Russians would hate that for the same reasons, you know, that, that existed in the 1980s. And then, of course, you know, obviously your traditional NATO partners would uh, would not support the deployment of Pershing 3 or Glickum 2, but many of your newer uh, NATO members uh, would, would be much more supportive of such a deployment because, you know, they feel the, the Russia threat much more readily. And so these are, you know, it's not something I'm suggesting it, it's an easy task by any stretch, but they're in the realm of the possible. And then, of course, in Asia, you know, with the, you know, in the, the current or the last uh, nuclear posture review, we, we got the W76 Mod 2 as sort of a stopgap measure for this disparity between the capabilities of the Russians and the capabilities of, of NATO and the United States in the non-strategic, tactical, whatever words you prefer. So, uh, but I've, you know, as I think about employment of, a, of, of an SLBM in Europe, I think there's a lot of room for miscalculation and for the Russians to misgauge, you know, even if it's one, one weapon versus, you know, a large number, which they might have anticipated traditionally, if it's going to be a large scale conflict, <clears throat> there still seems, at least to me, that there could be miscalculation. And that a W76 Mod 2 um, might be better suited for, for Asia and for the, the Taiwan scenario, I suggested. And of course, you know, whether Slickamin comes online or not, you know, it's still, that's a, a debatable question. We'll see what happens. But that also might be a, you know, a low yield Slickamin might be good for Asia. And then finally, uh, this, you know, perhaps is my wildest uh, solution, but essentially, you know, Taiwan had a nuclear weapons program and, and was on the verge of building a nuclear weapon um, in the early 1980s. And then, you know, they, they shut that program down because of us. And the idea would be turn a blind eye and, you know, allow the Taiwanese to do what it takes to defend themselves if there's the political will in Taiwan, which there very well may not be. Um, you know, but as people feel threats, uh, what was impossible becomes possible. And so, I, you know, I, while I recognize the challenges, you know, as, as the threat level changes, you know, the gates open wide. And so I think I'm at about my, <clears throat> my time uh, is up. So why don't we go ahead and move to, to questions? All right, thank you, Dr. Lather. Let me go ahead and stop sharing and adjust the screen view very quickly. All right, 
Um, so now we're going to move on to the Q&A portion of today's discussion. Um, so go ahead and keep submitting your questions to Mariah Yeager uh, for them to be addressed. So I'm going to start off with a multi-part question um, from Robert McCrate, and I'll go ahead and, and just go question by question. Um, so he has three basic questions about the non-nuclear weapon states um, operations on the battle, or sorry, options on the battlefield. Uh, the first one is, should defense planners be wary and better prepared for a likely NNWS exchange than a strategic weapons exchange? Uh, I, I would submit just now, you know, a lot of our, as we think through, you know, nuclear weapons and their use, there's a lot of, you know, we don't have a lot of data in which we can say, ah, well, geez, the data says. So we're, you know, we're, you know, in many respects, we're playing armchair general uh, when it comes to thinking through nuclear weapons and their likely use. And so just, you know, my take is that nuclear, a non-strategic nuclear strike is much more possible than a strategic use. And I think the Russians and the Chinese understand that. And they understand our limits in, in those capabilities. And so they see that there's a seam there. And whether they would take advantage of that seam or not, I can't say. But I would certainly like to sort of close that gap and take away any psychological perception that that's an option. So hopefully I answered that question. Well, thank you, Dr. Lothar. Um, the next part of the question is, what are the distinct nuclear and EMP effects of naval NNWS in Taiwan, in the Taiwan scenario by nationalist forces to deter PLA forces? Oh, that's a good question. So I'm not sure if I really have, um, I don't think I'm good enough on that topic to give you, a, you know, a really thorough answer. So I would, uh, when it comes to EMP there, you know, EMP is an interesting question. And so the folks up at AFIT, um, one of the things they do is, you know, you've got some really good folks like uh, Jim Petrosky and others that have been looking at this for decades. A lot of, you know, AFIT's got a lot of uh, retired FA-52s that, you know, join the faculty. And so I think if, if you're really interested in a good answer on EMP effects, I would talk to Jim Petrosky at AFIT because uh, there's some uncertainty in terms of exactly how would those effects propagate. Um, and then when it comes to the Taiwanese specifically, yeah, I'm, I would not be an expert on the Taiwanese capabilities. All right, thank you. Um, and the last part of the question is, can we expect lasers or other neutralizing yeah, neutralizing weapons platforms to be effective in deterring or intercepting NWS use. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, so when it comes to nuclear weapons, you know, it's a topic where there's quite a bit of passion and people hold very strong views. Um, but I'm sort of ambivalent about nuclear weapons in terms of achieving, I mostly care about how do you achieve the effects that they provide you as opposed to caring about the weapons themselves. So if lasers were to work, great. If, you know, if rods from God, if, you know, whatever the, the case may be, if there is something that 
can achieve the effects that nuclear weapons provide and replaces them, great, no, no problem. And so when it comes to lasers and you know defensive capabilities, I mean, I sort of follow it tangentially, but I haven't seen their effectiveness yet to where they could, you know, essentially have have the desired effect of the you know the question uh, in a defensive role. You know, and whether they, you know, I, you can only imagine that eventually we'll get there, but are we there now? Um, I personally haven't seen any science that says we're there now. All right, thank you. Um, Gene Germanovich from RAND has asked if you're seeing progress in wargaming for limited nuclear use um, or NNSW. So that's a great question. And I would answer no. Um, I would, you know, there's probably a lot of stuff going on that, you know, I don't know every every tabletop, every war game that happens. And I'm sure there's stuff going on in DC all over the place. You know, I'm in Kansas. So, uh, you know, we're not exactly in the hub of everything going on. Uh, so there may be lots of stuff happening, but I, I'm not hearing about it. Uh, so it's, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, in my time, you know, with the Air Force, and I can't tell you how many war games I played where when a nuclear strike happened, we stopped the game. And so, or there was tremendous reluctance to, to use a nuclear weapon. And so it, it was always hard. Now, um, I'm sure, you know, the NDU folks have been doing lots of good work and lots of tabletops. And so they, they probably have a lot more fidelity in some of their war games. Uh, you know, the folks at Naval War College and the degree, you know, Joe Williams at Stratcom, you know, he's done a lot of great work in war gaming. Um, but from what I've seen, particularly on the non-strategic, that's not a focus of the Army. Since the Army doesn't own nuclear weapons, they tend not to, to focus on it. And in the newest edition of the Usanka Journal, uh, Major General Garricky writes, uh, he's got sort of the opening article, and General Garricky's, I think he's the deputy G357 up at the Pentagon, so he's the Army's chief strategist, and he's written, you know, an article about our need to sort of focus on this issue. All right, thank you, Dr. Lather. Um, I'll pose this next question by Stephen Downs Martin next. And the question is, could the U.S.'s lack of rungs on the escalation ladder actually deter adversary use of tactical nuclear weapons, since the U.S. might politically have no choice but to retaliate with strategic weapons on the battlefield? I mean, anything's possible. I mean, it, you know, I would never say it's completely impossible. Uh, but my, you know, as I, as I sit and, you know, you know, I spent some time in Russia, um, over the last 20 years, and I've also spent time in, in China and worked, you know, with their militaries. Um, and as I understand, uh, you know, the culture of both countries and try to appreciate it for what it is without imposing my own cultural biases on them, and then understanding how uh, authoritarians think and act, um, my own sort of uh, take on it is that that's not how they would think, uh, that it would be more an opportunity uh, as opposed, and, you know, they're reading us too, and they're, you know, they're trying to feel us out, 
And, you know, my take as I read their material and as I read what they're writing, um, it's a, to me, it's a perception of weakness on our part. And for authoritarians take, you know, if you think about how do you come to power in an authoritarian regime, uh, it's very different than in a democracy. And so you have a very different take on how do you gain and maintain power. And then they impose that on how they look at the United States. And so what I would say is that they see that gap and gaps are made, you know, are made to be taken advantage of. You know, there's, you know, we mirror image the Russians and the Chinese in ways that um, I don't think is helpful. It certainly doesn't help us uh, deter them effectively. And we're in a period where general deterrence, a la the Cold War, um, is, is probably not as useful as it was. We can't just say, well, we have 24,000 and you have, you know, 40,000. And if you go out of each other, the world's destroyed. And therefore, you know, let's not fight. I think both, you know, both countries understand that they can, they can tailor their options. All right, thank you. Um, Bob Elder has asked if your research suggests that Russia or China would employ low-yield nuclear weapons to gain advantage or to only prevent the West from gaining advantage in conjunction with conventional conflict. Um, just my take on it. And like I say, there's a, you know, these are areas where, um, you know, one of my, I guess my favorite word and, uh, and everybody who's a graduate of the War College or Command and General Staff College, if you'll remember Fingerspitzengefühl, uh, the fingertip feel that, uh, that Clausewitz talks about. So my fingertip feel is that uh, they would both use them in a defensive way. They, it, would, it would at least be presented, it would seem offensive to us, but it would be declared as a defensive act to them, by them. And so they would feel, because authoritarians are inherently uh, feel heavy perceptions of, of risk. And if you've been to, you know, if you re read a lot of the Russian stuff, you, you would almost think that they truly believe that the United States wants to invade Russia and repopulate Russia with Americans. Uh, some of the stuff they write, you know, you know, takes you down this road and it's, I couldn't think of something that I would want to do less than, than you know, move to Russia. And, you know, I, I don't think many Americans want that. But the Russians, they're, they're, you know, they're very conspiratorial for good reason, because, you know, look at what they had to deal with for 70 years. And in an authoritarian regime, you get very conspiratorial. You know, I'd go to China and I'd be out in the middle of nowhere with Chinese citizens. And, I, you know, I'd want to talk to them about the government and other things. And they would almost think that in this, you know, on the Great Wall of China or wherever we might be, uh, that somebody was listening. And so I think these are cultural norms that, that you have in these types of regimes. And so um, when it comes to using them offensively, we would think it's offensive, but they would certainly think it's defensive. And it's that difference in cultural, you know, thinking. All right. Thank you, Dr. Lauther. Um, I have two questions that I'm going to pair together. Um, one is from Larry Kuznar, and then one will be from Todd Vesey. 
Um, so Larry's question is, I noticed modules on Chinese and Russian theories of victory in your curriculum. Are these theories of victory limited to a nuclear exchange or are there theories of victory in our larger competition with them? How were their theories of victory determined? Yeah, so these are, they're certain, they're by no means nuclear. They, they would, they would largely not focus on nuclear at all. Um, for, they're, they're both just um, in terms of, it's a lot of how does Russian culture, Russian history, you know, Chinese culture, Chinese history, how do these affect the way they think about uh, competition? You know, our focus, so one of our modules is on the American theory of warfare, the American way of war. And we juxtapose, you know, like I, I talk about the role of, of um, Confucianism and Taoism. And uh, we, we talk about the impact of the warring states and how, how the Chinese look backward and are looking at the warring states period and wins and losses in the warring states to bring those lessons to the present. And so you can see Xi Jinping is drawing lessons from the literature of the warring states. And, and so the ideas of deception and, and some of these other sort of key approaches to how we, they interact with us and what they want to do, you know, to us and how they would, how they operate. So it's by no means about nuclear weapons. I don't even think we talk about nukes at all uh, in those theories of victory. It's some of the, you know, the stuff I've talked about in terms of, you know, how they think and, you know, the conspiratorial nature and how authoritarian regimes think and, you know, Chinese history, this sort of lack of democracy and how, you know, the, the bureaucratic state developed and what did that mean? And we talk about, you know, agrarian societies and early development. So it's a lot of that kind of stuff. All right, thank you. Um, I think that you've pretty adequately um, addressed Todd's question um, because he was asking if um, the use of battlefield or nuclear weapons appeared in Chinese or Russian doctrine, um, and if not, what the indications and warnings that you see um, are to reveal their intended use. But you touched a, a bit on that. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, just, I mean, the Russians say more. Vladimir Putin says more. He talks about the use of nuclear weapons. and. You know, how much of it is hyperbole, how much of it is, you know, this is our actual, you know, like the whole idea of escalate to de-escalate. And there, you know, there's a great debate going on as to whether that's, that's, you know, real. And there's folks on one side that say, yep, escalate to de-escalate, it's Russian doctrine. Others say, nah, you're, you're misreading it. And so the Russians, you know, they want to push us back. Because if you, if you think about it, in 1997 with the unification of Germany, uh, we had we told the the Russians that we would not move further east, but uh, we have not kept that promise. So as we've moved to Russia's borders, and if you think about it, we've moved to Russia's borders, and we want we've tried to expand NATO even further. So the Russians, so first of all, the Russians said, "Well, look, the Americans, they're they're not honest. Uh, they did what they said they wouldn't do. Now they're on our borders." And we know what uh, an invasion from the West looks like, and they're closer than ever before. The first time they invaded us, they had to go all the way from France, and then, you know, they had to go from Germany the next time. Well, now they're on our borders. And so, geez, we've got a problem. And in an authoritarian system that's conspiratorial anyways, uh, you know, you can understand 
why the Russians would want to push us back and why, you know, Vladimir Putin would be very bold in his statements. Whereas for Russians, that's not their culture. You know, bold assertive statements, <clears throat> that is not Russian culture. Or sorry, Chinese culture. And so the Chinese have been, you know, very concealed in their statements. They occasionally they write a, you know, a defense white paper and but but it, they're always ambiguous and they're willfully ambiguous because if you look at strategic culture, that's you know, that's sort of Chinese strategic culture. You know, whereas we're open and we declare our policy and we, you know, we're a shining city upon a hill and we want you to love us and we want you to be like us and we don't know why you don't want to be. And so we have a very different way of, of dealing with the, these things than either the Russians or the Chinese. And the, to me, the biggest problem is we, we mirror it. We've got to stop doing that. We've had quite a few speakers on our, our platform say that as well. Um, so thank you. Um, Colin Ag has said, I'm not sure that Russia really believes that there's a, a threat that we will attack. Rather that the audience for this paranoia is their domestic audience. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you're, there, there's a, you know, there's probably truth to that. I mean, like we, you know, we've been, or at least I've been talking about, you know, we're dealing with an authoritarian regime. So your your biggest threat, if you look at take uh, China for example, it's you know internal domestic security that's where they spend the most money, not on you know external military spending because any authoritarian regime is most scared of its own people. Uh, so there's certainly an element of truth to that. Um, but I do think that the Russians clearly believe that we would like to see their regime go away. And they, they you know, they're, they're paranoid about what we will do to make that happen. They, I think they do probably understand that we will not, you know, we, America, NATO, are not just you know chomping at the bit to invade Russia. They get that, um, but they do think that we're using you know asymmetric means to try to see through it. Vladimir Putin's you know time as the leader of Russia is limited. So that that so that but that's a distinction, right? Right. Thank you. Um, so John Swiegel has asked, does NATO have to explicitly declare Russia to be an adversary in order to plan for a conflict with Russia employing battlefield and theater nuclear weapons? And if I understood correctly, um, this person says um, to take certain measures in which to raise DCA readiness rates. Um, so the DCA one, well, let me answer that. You know, that's a that's a USAFE question. Uh, I think USAFE could probably influence that greatly. And as and then I, somebody, you know, as I was working on this, I talked to somebody out at USAFE and they said, ah, we're working on it. You know, it's, we want to get it up. I don't, I don't think there's an impetus to get it to where I want it, but they want to get it up. Um, so, you know, that doesn't take uh, a declaration of Russia as an adversary. Could you, you know, I think you certainly could, but I don't think the, you know, the motivation would to do the kind of planning I'm talking about would be there absent that sort of declaration of Russia as a, you know, as a clear adversary. Um, it just, the motivation isn't there. And, and, you know, if you look at how much, you know, Western Europe depends upon Russian natural gas, 
it may be harder than, you know, it's probably going to be quite hard to get, uh, you know, if I could steal from uh, uh, George, George W. Bush, old NATO, if you, it'll be hard to get old NATO to, you know, support a declaration like that or, or a move like that, um, because they, you know, they depend upon Russia for, you know, fossil fuels. So that'll be a hard thing. I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, it'd be a challenge to get NATO planning in that direction because they really don't want to make Russia mad and have them cut the gas off. Along that same line, um, Patrick Rhodes has asked if you can offer some thoughts about how the members in NATO would come to a decision about how it would yeah. respond to limited nuclear detonation by the Russians. Is it possible that Poland, Spain, and Italy, for example, might have different views that lead to indecision? And how would the U.S. Absolutely. respond to NATO indecision? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. It, it would be an incredibly hard thing to create uh, a unified message. Absolutely. No question. No question about it. And, and you know, the Eastern countries and, you know, the Western countries uh, have very, very different um, views of the threat from Russia. I mean, I was at a meeting uh, a couple of years ago and uh, was with a Polish general and the Polish general, I mean, the only thing he wanted to talk about was how do they get F-35? because uh, they wanted F-35 to fight the Russians. And so how do they get that? So their, you know, their threat perception is, is in no way the same as, you know, the Germans or the French. And, you know, part of it's geography. They're further from the threat. And, you know, they just have a, a willingness to sort of tolerate uh, Russian mucking about, you know, because the Russians muck around in their elections as well. And they, you know, they, they get involved in, uh, you know, German elections and, and they, you know, you sort of, you weigh it and you say, well, you know, what do we got to tolerate from the Russians to, you know, get the natural gas or whatever else, you know, peace we want, you know, what are, what's that compromise? Uh, whereas, you know, the, the Eastern nations, the Baltic states, Poland, they're all like, man, this is, this is existential for us. We know who the Russians are. We, we've dealt with them before. So he's absolutely right. It's a big problem. And I'm not sure if you resolve it uh, until there's something that actually happens. And then, you know, the gates are wide open. All right. Thanks so much. Um, okay. I'll pose this next one by D. Lamb next. Um, and this question is, how would your research suggest that governments would be able to de-escalate if theater nuclear weapons were used? Uh, have there been proposed stopping points after nuclear weapons use is breached? Yeah, so, you know, it's something um, we haven't really looked at that much. I mean, you know, I'm, you know, I used to, whenever I would teach, you know, courses on this, you know, we'd, we'd look at the escalation ladder and, you know, we would, you know, read Herman Kahn and, and so, I don't necessarily think that the, you can guarantee that, you know, you use one, we use a bigger one. You use a bigger one, we, and it's going to just be this, you know, there, you know it's going to be conditions on the ground at any given time that are going to lead political leaders to back away. And so I, I think it's, it's not one of those well thought out, 
Uh, and if you look at conflict, I, I don't think the conflicts, um, there's like, there's a special way nuclear weapons are fought. And then there's a very different way that conventional conflicts are fought. There, there's not, you know, and never the twain shall meet. In, there's this, if you look at how like American presidents through Vietnam and Korea, they're making decisions sort of, you know, day by day on the fly. And, you know, they're operating under stress with bad information. And, and I think that's probably how it would, you know, how things would flesh out. And eventually, you know, somebody's going to say, well, you know, I don't want to go any further. I don't think, you know, the, uh, the interested player worth it. And, you know, part of my main, you know, objective here is to highlight this gap and then to encourage the United States to fill the gap in the hope that, you know, we never have a use. So we never find ourselves in that. All right, thank you. Uh, getting quite a few questions. Um, thank you everyone for, for submitting all of your questions. Um, let's go with this next one um, from Chief Master Sergeant William Horay. Um, and this question is, how likely do you think that it is that we may see the use of low-yield low nuclear weapons during the persistent proxy conflicts that have been ongoing in the Middle East? Uh, in the Middle East, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I don't think it's likely. Um, it's interesting to watch the, the Iranians in terms of, you know, their weapons development, uh, because that, you know, that whole region could become a you know it could become a powder keg in terms of states going nuclear the the ties between pakistan and saudi arabia and sort of their you know approach to having systems that could become nuclear systems if the iranians go nuclear but in terms of the actual use of weapons in the middle east i i don't foresee it anytime soon um but it's you know the region is unpredictable and seems to be you know conflict prone and it, you know it's been that i can't think of a really peaceful period um you know in the, in the middle east uh, you know as i think back to you know the the assyrian and persian empires and you move from there forward it's 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 been a pretty chaotic place you know forever but nuclear weapons use it's not something that keeps me up at night. All right, thank you. Um, I have one more question on the Middle East, and then I have a, a few questions that I'll pose that um, have to do with um, future action and, and preparation going forward. Um, so, so Steve Schenkel has asked if you can discuss your thoughts on how India and Pakistan see the use of nukes and how your research fits into this area. Um, and he brings yeah. up those two countries in particular because they've had several conventional clashes. Yeah, I mean, as I've thought about like where in the world, if there's anywhere in the world where nuclear weapons are, you know, have the highest statistical probability of being used, I would probably say it's, you know, India, Pakistan. That, that, that would be where I would think it would. Um, and, you know, the pack, you know, the Pakistani army has nuclear weapons. Um, you know, the U.S. has worked with them to have uh, greater uh, controls on their systems. Um, you know, the I think you know I'm, I don't spend a lot of time on focused on that 
you know, that competition. Um, but, you know, India's cold start, the, you know, the Cargill crisis, you know, you've had some of these that have been problematic. For the Indians, um, you know, the last time, you know, I was there a few years ago, and the last time I was there, what surprised me, I think the, it was the first time I went to India, and I wanted to talk India, Pakistan, all they want to talk about was China, because for them, China's the problem. Uh, you know, uh, Pakistan is a nuisance, China's a problem. China is a real threat. And so I don't know if that creates um, that focus on China, you know, as opposed to uh, Pakistan creates issues. Uh, in some respects, I think it's sort of like, you know, the North Koreans where when we start ignoring the North Koreans, and, you know, they'll, you know, they've engaged in, I think it was like 74 sort of acts of violence, you know, whether it's you know, killing troops at the DMZ or whether it's, uh, you know, shelling islands, South Korean islands or sinking ships or whatever. Whenever we ignore them, they tend to act out. And so with the Chinese focus or with the Indian focus on China, I wonder if, if there, there's still a clear focus on Pakistan, but, you know, what are the dynamics at play um, while China is, is focused elsewhere and, you know, may, may not be focusing on Pakistan. So I don't know if that answers the question, but that's just sort of how I read the situation right now. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. Um, so to, to conclude kind of on um, uh, action items and feature preparations, uh, OJ Johnson has asked, since you prepare or since you present a very plausible use of low yield nuclear weapons, how do we begin to prepare our leaders to deal with these potential scenarios? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I, the, the biggest thing that I think is that um, you know, nuclear weapons are, it's a very, very ideological um, issue that you don't really see when it comes to any other military capabilities. Because in the end, nuclear weapons are military capabilities. But that's all they, they don't, they're not good or bad, right or wrong. They don't have sentience. They don't, I think we, we give, we attribute to them um, moral characteristics that they don't deserve. And so I think once we sort of stop doing that and we sit back and think, you know, just very sort of realistically about uh, nuclear weapons, and then you, can, then you can really think through, you know, what's the best approach and what do we need to do and not do? Because I, I think regardless of where you stand on, you know, on the aisle or where you stand in terms of your views of nuclear weapons, we, I think we can all agree our primary objective is to, to ensure they never get used. I think we'll all agree on that. And so what is the best approach? So take away all that emotional energy and just look at, you know, what's the best way to ensure they don't get used? Is the best way um, to sort of have peer capabilities? And I kind of think as you look at adversaries that, it's when people, this is one of the things that like Joe Williams and I did an article where we looked at, we, we were able to look at uh, the lessons from our nuclear war games, you know, all classified war games. We unclassified some of the results, the way, you know, we wrote them up 
And one of the things we found, it was very hard to signal in the midst of conflict. And that the more you tried to use discrete signals, like, hey, I'm going to put a low-yield weapon in this, you know, very far place. And then, you know, the Russians are going to know that what I'm trying to say to them is, we found that that, you know, that doesn't work. Uh, so what I think is you have to be very obvious with potential adversaries and be obvious before conflict starts, because once conflict starts, it's hard to communicate. And so that's why I sort of advocate, you know, having peer capabilities so that your adversary, because they, they look for what they know. You know, we have, we take, a, if you're a fan of um, prospect theory, you know, there's, and if you've ever read, uh, I forget Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, you know, we have system one and system two, and system one is where we're taking shortcuts all the time. And so we take shortcuts, mental shortcuts, because we're, you know, we're trying to act and react very quickly. So we're constantly seeing if these patterns that we've seen in the past is what we're looking at now. And so that shortcut is what adversaries are going to be looking for and what leaders are looking for prior to conflict, in the midst of conflict. And so they're always trying to jam everything they see into something they already know. And so what, I, what that means is that you can, by virtue of having similar capabilities, you present your adversary with something they already know so that their system one thinking which is look, taking shortcuts, says, okay, I know what that is. I know what that means to me. Because it's very hard to say, well, if I don't have, if, if I only have uh, strategic capabilities, whereas the adversary has this full range of capabilities, does that mean that that'll deter so that, you know, I can, you know, that'll deter them because they know I'll have to go strategic? That's a pretty complex way for, you know, presidents, you know, if you look at most presidents, I mean, look at them. I mean, we've got former actors and we've got, you know, we've got TV stars and we've got, you know, um, community organizers. And, you know, we've got folks that have not spent their careers thinking through nuclear deterrence. And so therefore they're looking for, you know, psychological shortcuts to make decisions. And so, I, you know, the idea that there are a bunch of folks like us who sit around and really build out scenarios, well, when the shit hits the fan, they're, you know, a leader is not going to go, well, let me read through, you know, Khan's books on deterrence and let me read what Schelling said. They're not going to do that. They're going to make shortcut decisions based on what their experiences are. And it's mostly going to be thinking through their their experience, you know, having been a senator or a governor or, you know, whatever else they've done. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Lowther, so much for addressing all of our audience's questions. Um, we had quite a few that we didn't have a chance to, to get to today. Um, so I encourage those who posed a question that wasn't addressed today to shoot me an email with those questions. Um, my email is npeterson at nsiteam.com, and I'd be happy to pass them over to Dr. Lowther. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, sir, and um, for your fantastic brief. So have a great day. Thanks, Thanks everybody, for uh, attending. I appreciate it. All right. Goodbye.